Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, everybody, to another season, season two of the Welcome to the J podcast. I'm your host, Jahans Managa, aka 12, if you know me that way. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to the Field of 68 Media Network, where you have more content such as this, and a lot of different individuals representing their alma maters, talking all things college basketball. Our first guest of season two, probably our most important guest so far. He spent the last 41 years at Crane University, including the last 27 as the athletic director. Under his tenure, the Blue Jays have won 43 regular season conference titles and 43 conference tournament championships. It was also under his tenure that the university moved from the Missouri Valley Conference to the Big East. He is inducted into Omaha Sports Hall of Fame. He became the first four-time Under Armour Athletic Director of the Year. And he's also served on the College World Series Executive Committee. He has a building named after him. He is a living legend in the Omaha community and a man who deserves so much praise for all that he's done for Crane Athletics. He is the pride of Webster City, Iowa. Bruce Rasmussen is in the building with us. How's it going, Bruce? Thanks, Jay. That's, uh, it sounds like a eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that it's not. It's just, I mean, you have a long list of accomplishments. If your introduction has to cut away, you know, quite a bit of that. So I hope you don't mind that I just listed some of the highlights. <laughs> that I don't mind. Uh, I have to ask you, obviously, how are you enjoying retirement so far? Well, I guess you'd have to ask my wife a little bit. Uh, for, <laughs> for quite a bit of time, I've been trying to help out a lot of the people at Creighton. You know, it's been a... Uh, a, a journey of love. I, I love Creighton. I love Omaha. Uh, when, when I went to work, I didn't go to Creighton because I had to. Most days I went to Creighton because I wanted to, because it was my family. <clears throat> uh, you have relationships with people that you know and trust. And, and that's important. That's what makes a job a good job. And to go every day and see some of your family was not something that you had to do. It was something you wanted to do. So I still have been spending a lot of time with my Creighton family, in spite of the fact that right now I'm in West Yellowstone, Montana. Uh, I've got a son that lives in Bozeman, and uh, we're taking a kind of an extended trip to go up and see him. And so we've been in, we were in Colorado for a couple of days, in Wyoming for a couple of days, and now we're going to be uh, in Montana for a few days. And so uh, not working has given me a little bit more flexibility to do things like this, where uh, before I always felt guilty not going in and seeing my family every day. So it's been a little bit of a change. It has been an adjustment and there's a gradual transition away and uh, it will continue. I was just about to say, after 41 years on the job, it's a little bit tough to just simply walk away yeah. and you know, it's not necessarily a clean cut. It feels like you just, you're still in the midst of things. You're still, you know, talking to those people. And like you said, people became family there for you, correct? Yeah. You want to help as much as you can. And, and that's, mm -hmm. uh, that was part of my attitude uh, when I worked there is that my job was to serve them. Their job wasn't to serve me. And just because I'm not getting paid doesn't mean that I'm still not available to help. Uh, in mm. fact, it would be counterintuitive to say that because we have relied uh, at Creighton uh, on so many people 
that have gone beyond their jobs and beyond their families to help us, and they never received a paycheck. So for me to say, well, I'm not going to help because I'm not receiving a paycheck would be a contradiction to everything we've asked uh, for the past 41 years. How difficult of a transition has it been so far? I know it's only been a couple of months since you, you know, gave in your two weeks notice, but uh, have you been able to ease into this retirement life or, you know, has it been a little (laughs) difficult to not wake up and feel the urge to drive down to campus and get to work every day? Well, you you don't realize how much of an addiction it was, but uh, (laughs) really for the first month, pretty much every day, I did get up and drive down to campus. Uh, We, we, uh, didn't have a sitting athletic director. Uh, and we had a lot of issues, uh, especially with it being the start of school, the spar- start of uh, practice for almost all the sports, the start of competition for some of the sports, and a number of issues for our staff, uh, including season tickets, J-backers. Uh, what are we doing with names, images, and likenesses? What are we doing with covid Uh, What are we doing with fundraising? What are our projects? And so, you know, it's been a gradual transition away. uh, But really, for most of the last couple of months, I've been either on campus or working uh, to help a number of my staff and coaches. uh, And and that isn't going to change. It it will uh, it'll gradually uh, move. I'll gradually move away from that. But I'm always available to help our coaches, our staff, our student athletes. Um, you know, for me, the, the biggest joy was uh, we have about 300 student athletes and to serve those student athletes <coughs> on a daily basis and see them grow, see them change, see their enthusiasm, listen to them and learn from them. And in reality, I learned a lot more from the student athletes than I ever taught them. It was kind of interesting to see you uh, this summer. It was the first time I had seen you in a couple of years, obviously since the pandemic hit last summer, I wasn't able to get back down to Omaha and get to the regular training schedule that I do before gearing up for another season overseas. But I finally got to see you. You came down as I was shooting. You gave me a big hug. We had a little bit of a conversation. And it felt at that time like you still had a number of years, you know, under your belt. And it was a surprise to me where a month later you announced your your retirement. So kind of talk to me about that process of deciding that, you know what, this is time for me to hang it up. The university is in pretty good hands as I see it. And, you know, I like to go on with my life and and move on to the next chapter. How did that decision come to be and, and how long did you wrestle with that decision? Well, I've wrestled with that decision for quite a while, not because I didn't enjoy coming to work, but because... I think one of the uh, real, real values of Creighton University, first of all, I've got an unbelievable staff, uh, tremendous staff. Uh, and what we've tried to do with our staff, just like we've tried to do with our student athletes, our student athletes, the goal was to recruit outstanding students who also happen to be athletes, to retain them, to develop them, and to have them graduate. And you certainly cannot develop them if you can't retain them. And so retention of student athletes, development of student athletes, graduation of student athletes was the goal. But that moves on to the staff. You cannot develop the staff. You can't retain the staff if you're not developing them. And to develop them, every one of our staff has goals and ambitions. And you're trying to find out what those goals and ambitions are and allow them 
to be able to meet them at Creighton University without having to leave Creighton to meet those goals. And we've got some staff that are tremendous that really are ready to be uh, athletic administrators, to be athletic directors, uh, to advance in their uh, profession at Creighton. And it felt like a good time for me uh, to move aside and allow some of my staff to advance without having to leave Creighton. And that was probably the biggest part of uh, my thought process was uh, when you have, I don't know of a, of a position, Jay, that is more dependent upon others than athletic director. We get too much credit when things go well and may, we may get too much blame when they don't. But mm -hmm. in order to be successful as an athletic director, you have to have the support of your president and your board of trustees. Uh, you have to have support of many faculty and staff that will work with your coaches and student athletes. You have to have outstanding coaches. You have to have outstanding staff. They, your coaches had better recruit outstanding student athletes. And none of that works if you don't have a group of people in your community that are willing to go beyond their jobs and families and make a commitment to you. So mm -hmm. being an athletic director depends upon a lot of people. And the reality is this, if you have all that in place, uh, even a dirt bag uh, can be the athletic director and be successful. <laughs> and I've proven that. <laughs> I've proven that for a number of years. So um, to have the Hum Humble as always, Bruce, <laughs> humble as always. <laughs> to have the flexibility to, uh, I my family is, uh, has spread out. I've got two daughters in Phoenix. I've got a mm -hmm. son in Bozeman, Montana. I've got a son in Colorado. And to be able to uh, go out and see them and spend some quality time with your family and with some of our donors that have become friends that are all around the country and to be able to do that without feeling guilty about leaving Creighton, leaving campus, leaving your student athletes, leaving your coaches uh, was a large part of the process. But the reality is we have an unbelievable staff that could function very successfully without me. And that made the decision a lot easier. Before becoming AD or even associate AD, you took over the women's basketball program uh, in the 80s. By the end of that tenure, you had 196 wins under your resume, including, you know, a, a record, uh, a record for games won at that time with 28 wins and four losses in your last year. What was the key to, you know, turning that women's basketball program around and, you know, kind of putting your name out there as maybe one of those people who could potentially take over that, that AD position in the future? Well, just like being an athletic administrator, being a coach is entirely dependent upon the quality of the young women, the people you have involved in your program. When I came to Creighton, we had no scholarships. I had no assistants. I had no uh, athletic trainer, had no sports information director. Uh, you know, we, uh, we had just uh, one half of the old gym. Uh, we hadn't had it on to the old gym. And uh, we, back then, uh, Title IX had a little bit different meaning. Uh, men's basketball said, yes, uh, we believe in title nine. We'll have the gym for 12 hours. You can have the gym for 12 hours. We'll have it from 7am to 7pm. And the women Jeez. can have it from 7pm to 7am. 
And uh, so things have changed. You know, those first right. couple of years, we were everybody's homecoming. Uh, uh, everybody wanted us to be their homecoming game because they were guaranteed a win. Uh, mm-hmm. But even, even in those first few years of coaching, and I learned a lot, but I had outstanding kids who were overmatched. Like I said, we started with zero scholarships. You could have 15. Uh, we went from zero to two to four to six to eight. When I uh, left Creighton as the women's basketball coach, uh, we were going from eight to 10 scholarships. So uh, the, the uh, success of those women back in that age, and when I, when I moved from head women's basketball coach to assistant athletic director, I didn't have a full-time assistant. Uh, and so the success of those young women back then is amazing. You know, people look at your one loss record, but I, I tend to judge people by what they do with what they have and what those young women did with what they had was absolutely amazing. I learned so much from them. But the, the other part of the reality was when you had no full-time assistance, I was an absentee father and I was an absentee husband. Uh, I not only uh that was I coaching, I was teaching a full load in exercise science. Uh, and so I was never at home. And when I was at home, I was on the phone recruiting or I was watching tape of either uh, our practices or upcoming games. We had, uh, my wife and I had three kids at that time and I spent most of my time away from home. And I just felt that it was time for me to be able to be able to spend more time at home in, in reality, becoming athletic director, while I spent a lot of time uh, in the community, uh, I was home a lot more nights, and it allowed me to be a better dad and a better husband. A lot less film watching as well, I would assume, correct? Yes. <laughs> uh, you were fundamental in making sure that Crane University was under this one umbrella of the Missouri Valley Conference, as opposed to at the time being in the Western Athletic Conference and then some teams being in the Valley. Uh, why do you think that was so instrumental in not only the culture uh, that it brought to university, but maybe the identity as well that it brought to the community of Omaha to have one team, or, or sorry, one university where all the teams are under this one umbrella and all competing against the same teams in one conference? Well, it, it makes it a lot easier in the message to recruit. You know, uh, when you're trying to recruit outstanding student athletes, uh, again, it's much easier if you have uh, like traditions, like opponents, you can develop rivalries, uh, you have uh, uh, really a lot more in common with the rest. Uh, like you said, you're not apart from the rest of the athletic department, you're a part of mm-hmm. the rest of the athletic department. And it just made it a little bit easier to recruit. Uh, when, mm-hmm. when I started coaching, we were an independent. And if we played 30 games, we played 20, some of them on the road. It was difficult yes. to get people to come to your place, especially as they went into conference play. Uh, they're going into, most teams were going into conference play and they didn't want to play non-conference opponents in the middle of a conference season. So my first few years of coaching, well, uh, by the time we got to mid-January, we had well over two-thirds of our games played. Uh, and so it, uh, it just created some commonality uh, for us in the recruiting and retention process. Mm-hmm. When you took over as AD, there was no 
TD Ameritrade, no Quest Center or, you know, CenturyLink or Shot Health, whatever name we're giving it nowadays, no Championship Center, no Sokol, no Roof, uh, no Rasmussen Center. What was it about the vision that you saw early on in the process that allowed you to not only attack these different projects, but actually see it come to fruition and I'm anticipating that there are some, also some projects that you weren't able to complete for whatever reason. If you have any of that information, please let us know. But first and foremost, what was it about your vision of expanding campus and, and expanding Crane's uh, hold on the community that made all these different projects come to fruition? Well, first of all, uh, as I said earlier, our job is to serve the student athletes. It's not their job to serve us. Uh, we're the reason, they're the reason for us being at, at Creighton. And so if you're trying to recruit and retain and develop outstanding student athletes in the recruiting process, they're looking at what do you have for facilities? What do you have that will allow me to go to practice every day and to be better today than I was yesterday? And facilities are a big part of that. And so it was a passion to try to be able to provide the right facilities, the right environment for our student athletes. But it took a number of people in the community who were willing to make a commitment to that vision. And without that, we can have that vision. You can have it as a student athlete. You can have it as a coach. I can have it as an athletic director. But without people buying into that vision, without people in Omaha saying, yes, we are willing to help uh, that doesn't happen. And Omaha is such an unbelievable community in that way. Omaha is Omaha for real. Like people really embrace us and embrace the Blue Jays. A big part of it obviously has to do with the fact that Nebraska doesn't have professional sports, which I thoroughly enjoyed during my time there <laughs> because they made it seem like those games were so much bigger and so much more important. Um, every time I tell people about you know, the amount of fans that we had at our games and, you know, how our fans travel and that stuff. They literally can't believe it that a small Jesuit school in the middle of the United States of America can have such a following. Uh, obviously, we've both been blessed to be a part of the community. Uh, what has been some of, you know, your favorite experiences just talking to the members of community who have either helped with such projects, who have been fans, who have been lifelong fans and you know, what have been some of the uh, things that they've told you uh, about, you know, how you made them feel a part of the Korean University program as much as you were a part of it? Well, in order for us to be successful, and, and I saw as I was a coach, you see DePaul at that time being nationally relevant in men's basketball. DePaul mm -hmm. was Chicago's team. You saw Marquette being relevant nationally in basketball. Marquette was Milwaukee's team. And I felt in order for us to be able to be successful, we were going to have to become Omaha's team, not mm -hmm. a team of people who graduated from Creighton, not a team that was supported by doctors and lawyers in the community, but a, a team and a program that, was, that had, had to become Omaha's team. And I think in order to do that, uh, Loyalties developed when you do things you didn't have to do, not when you do things you had to do, but when you do mm -hmm. things you didn't have to do. So especially early in my administrative career at Creighton, we started a program we called Operation Blue Jay. And that was 
it, it, we required all of our student athletes and all of our coaches to be involved in community service, uh, to get out in the community, to help the community in whatever way the community needed help to develop a loyalty uh, to, to Creighton uh, because of what we did that we didn't have to do. And mm -hmm. I think over a period of time, we became Omaha's team. But the critical part of that was our student athletes, the quality of our student athletes and the way our student athletes played, the way they conducted themselves. You could tell in watching our teams play that they had a love for each other. <clears throat> they had a love for the game that they uh, were willing to execute the fundamentals of the game, that everybody on the team was important, that there was a joy in the process. There was fun in the process. And when the community, when people in the community saw that, they were attracted to that. I think we are attracted to that. We are attracted when we see people that love what they are doing, when they love what, uh, who they are doing it with. They play with a joy. They play with an effort. They play with an intensity. And Omaha, Creighton had to become, in order for us to compete nationally, not just in the Missouri Valley, not just in the Big East, but in order for us to compete nationally, because we don't have the resources that a football power has, uh, because we don't have the resources that a lot of schools have, being a private, small private Catholic school in Omaha, Nebraska, we had to develop relationships. And I think that uh, there are a lot of lessons that you learn as a result of that, because life is about relationships. Uh, if, if COVID, uh, if we learn anything from COVID, it is the value of relationships with people we know and trust. And I think that what caused the snowball of Creighton Athletics to grow and to draw 17,000 plus for every men's basketball game to be one of the leading uh, programs in the country in attendance in volleyball, in men's baseball, in men's soccer, in men's basketball is because of the relationships we have developed with people in the community. You've mentioned a few times now that, you know, a big part of your job was the people who you were working alongside with, you know, uh, building that trust and making sure that things were always heading in the right direction. You have to give yourself a little bit of credit, Bruce, for some of the hires that you've made as far as head coaching positions are concerned from, you know, Flynn to KBB to Coach Warming to, you know, Coach Mack, Altman. Uh, there has to be some sort of blueprint that you follow when it comes to, you know, a, a prospective coach coming into your office, having that first meeting, um, what is it that you look uh, for when it comes to hiring these coaches who have had such tremendous success under your tenure? What advice would you give to a young AD who is going through that similar situation where they have to make an impactful hire? Uh, I, I, that's a great question. And, and uh, uh, hiring is, is an inexact science, much like recruiting is an inexact science. But I think there are key things that you look for. I think we spend too much time looking at the what looking at the resume and seeing what people did, looking at a potential men's basketball player and looking at how many points they averaged, how many rebounds they had, looking at the what. I don't think we spend enough time looking at the why. Why were they able to do what they were able to do? And uh, I think there's a, a line that is your potential and there's a line that's your performance and you're trying to narrow that gap as much as possible. So what are you doing with what you have? But I really looked at three buckets. 
I looked at uh, passion, intelligence, and character. And let me go back and go through those. Passion. First of all, our job above all else is to serve our student athletes, to help them grow and develop individually and as a part of a team to the best of their abilities and desires. So you want people who have a servant attitude, who are willing to do more than just the job description. So when I when I uh, look at uh, potential candidates for any job, let's say men's basketball, I look at what did they do that they didn't have to do? Were they involved in the community? What were they doing outside of their job? Were they teachers? Was there, were they there to serve the student athletes instead of the student athletes there to serve them? And let me give you an example, okay? Uh, you have some basketball coaches who are very successful who say, this is the way we do things. You adjust to me, okay? I look for coaches that say, listen, I'm here to serve you. I'm going to adjust to you. What are your strengths? What are your talents? I'll change the way that I play offense. I'll change the way that I play defense. I'll change the way that I communicate to you individually uh, to, to best serve you and to best serve your talents. And so you look at a Dana Altman. Dana changed his offense and defense based upon the talent that he had. And I mean, if, if, uh, we started out the season and we started in a defense and we found out that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that successful. He changed, he changed offensively. Uh, coach Mack was the same way. Coach Warming, coach Booth, uh, all those coaches are, their first priority was to serve the student athletes individually and as part of a team. But passion to me is what do you do that you don't have to do? Let's take it to the student athlete. You know, we can spend a lot of time talking about all the things Doug McDermott accomplished, right? We can talk about his points. We can talk about his rebounds. We can talk about the wins. We can talk about all of that. Let's look at the why. Doug was addicted to getting better. He went in the gym every day, and his first thought was, what am I going to do today to be better than I was yesterday? Where are my weaknesses? Uh, the team that we're going to play, what are they going to do uh, to, to challenge me? What are they going to do to take things away from me? Practice was a minimum job description. Practice was what you went to to find out what you needed to work on. That's passion. Passion is doing things that you didn't have to do. Intelligence obviously involves talent. It involves skill. It involves knowledge. But you see people who are very uh, intelligent in a narrow basis, but they are not willing to continue to learn. Uh, you know, I, early in my coaching career, I uh, called an AD about a coach. And I said, he's been at your institution 12 years. He's had 12 years of experience. And this AD was very blunt. He said, no, he had one year of experience 12 times. He hasn't changed. He hasn't grown. So you look for people that are passionate about being better, about, yeah. about improving. Uh, and then character is... How do you treat others? What's your relationship with those people that you are working with? Are they going to become friends? Are they going to become teammates? I heard uh, a person who trained Navy SEALs, and he said, the Navy SEALs fighting group is the most select fighting group in the world. Maybe one out of every hundred who try to get into the Navy SEALs is successful. Uh, what is the leading characteristic 
of those people that are successful in the Navy SEALs. And it isn't toughness. It isn't talent. It isn't mental strength. The leading characteristic of those people who are successful in the Navy SEALs is their care and concern for the person next to them. And so in the process of recruiting outstanding coaches, outstanding teachers, you look at their character. You look at how do they care about, it's not in-focused, it's out-focused. How do they care about the people they're serving? Is it a lifetime commitment? Are they willing to do whatever they need to do to help each individual outside of basketball, outside of soccer, outside of volleyball? Somebody once said the most dangerous people in the world are people with passion and intelligence and no character. Uh, you'd rather they were dumb and lazy. <laughs> and when you right. look at the, the problems that most sports have, most sports, the problem people have uh, and the problem we have in sport is not people with passion with that are lacking passion or lacking intelligence. It's people that are lacking character. So those are the things that I looked for when I was recruiting mm -hmm. student athletes. Those are the things I look for when I was recruiting coaches. Uh, there's two hires that I want to talk specifically about. Uh, it's Coach Altman and obviously Coach Flannery on the, on the women's side. First with Coach Altman, uh, you talked about obviously some of the, you know, some of the reasons why you hired a coaching staff. You know, it's about passion, it's about intelligence. Uh, what was it about Coach Altman that really, you know, struck at you as, you know, this is the guy that I need to lead my men's basketball program. How did you convince him to, you know, come the first time around? And then how did you convince him to stay the second time around after that press conference in Arkansas? <laughs> well, the, the first time, ironically, I had recruited a, a young lady out of Milwaukee, uh, mm -hmm. Wisconsin, who I saw goaltend in a high school game. She came from an inner city school in Milwaukee. Not many people were recruiting inner city uh, women at that time. Uh, she came to Creighton but we were not, she had not taken the ACT. Uh, when she came on campus, she took the ACT. She didn't do well. They wouldn't admit her. So I placed her at a junior college in Missouri, Moberly Junior College, okay? The men's basketball coach at Moberly Junior College was Dana Altman. Uh, and uh, at that time, the women's team played and then the men's team played the game after. So I watched this guy who looked like he was 15 years old uh, <laughs> coach and the intensity, the passion, uh, the willingness of the players to buy into what he was doing uh, was amazing to me. Uh, the girl that I placed there, Jackie Glosson, I was going to come back to Creighton the week before signing. Uh, the, the Moberly women's coach got the Oklahoma State head women's basketball job and took Jackie Glosson with her. So I thought that uh, that whole process was a huge failure. However, mm -hmm. years later, I followed Dana when he went to Kansas State as an assistant to Lonnie Kruger, then when he became the head basketball coach. And when we had my first job as athletic director was to make a change in the men's basketball uh, head position. And mm -hmm. uh, so I became athletic director in 94. I met with Dana Altman for about four hours. He was the head coach at Kansas State. He was the coach of the year in the Big Eight that year. 
his team went to the final four of the NIT in New York. But Dana wasn't happy in Manhattan. And uh, I don't know why he, he decided to come to Creighton because our facilities were awful. Our commitment to men's basketball was awful. Uh, but for whatever reason, Dana said, we're going to give it a shot. And uh, uh, in 16 years, you know, he took the snowball. When he came to Creighton, we were drawing about 1,500 people a game in men's basketball. And when he left, uh, we were drawing uh, close to 15,000 in men's basketball. Mm -hmm. And so Dana is, has a lot of, deserves a lot of credit for the success we've had at Creighton, not just in men's basketball, but across the board, because we're so dependent upon how men's basketball, the success of men's basketball to fund the remainder of our programs. So was it a shock to you when he decided to look elsewhere and dip his toes in the water, so to speak, uh, by testing out that Arkansas job? Well, first of all, in the last few years, Dana was at Creighton. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I'm, when I say the last few, probably the last 10 years, he was at Creighton. Every time there was a major job open, Dana was a candidate. If he wasn't a candidate, uh, those schools weren't doing their due diligence in looking at potential candidates. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, um, Dana was happy at Creighton. Uh, Dana was felt happy about the situation his family was in. He turned down, if people knew the number of outstanding jobs that he turned down, uh, uh, I think they'd be shocked. Year after mm -hmm. year after year, he was offered jobs at, at football schools, at major conference schools that he turned down. However, every time that happened, he made his assistants mad. They were mad at him. They were mad at me because they, if, if he went to a big school, they went with him. They got better pay. They had a better chance to advance. So typically, every time that Dana turned down a job for about a month, the men's basketball assistants were all not only mad at him, they were mad at me because they, they thought I, I had talked him out of, of taking those jobs. So when he went to Arkansas, I, I wasn't surprised uh, that, that he looked at that job. It was a tremendous job. Arkansas had been to the Final Four before. Arkansas was in a major conference. Arkansas had unbelievable resources and unbelievable uh, fan support. Uh, but Dana went there not for the right reasons. Dana went there uh, because he thought that it would provide a better situation for his assistants and for his family. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that as he thought about that, as he got down on campus, uh, he realized he'd made a mistake. And, you know, life's, life's, uh, a, a series of mistakes. You know, I say, you know, basketball is a game of mistakes. Players make mistakes. Coaches make mistakes. Officials make mistakes. Uh, Dana realized he made a mistake and was able to correct that mistake and, and come back to Creighton. I definitely want to talk about Coach Flan as well, who's one of my favorite people on campus. He's just <laughs> such a welcoming and, and a joy to be around. Uh, what he's done for the women's basketball program, you know, the records and the wins and the losses speak for themselves, obviously. But I feel like one of his biggest accomplishments is the lack of turnover when it comes to that women's program, as far as, you know, young women deciding to leave and look for opportunities elsewhere. I think he's only had, what, maybe a couple of transfers and 
his entire tenure while, while he's been there. Uh, so the same question that I asked you about Coach Altman, what was it that you saw about Flan that, you know, really uh, made you take a liking to him and, and trust him with the women's program, which, I mean, in, in all fairness, was your, you know, first uh, introduction to Korean athletics? Well, again, it's a great question. And as I said earlier, loyalties developed when you do things you didn't have to do. When I was coaching women's basketball and we had two scholarships, four scholarships, six scholarships, uh, we couldn't conduct practice. Uh, we had some walk-ons, some non-scholarship players, and we had some players on partial scholarships, but we couldn't conduct practice without having basically a scout team. And uh, Jim Flannery came to Creighton, was a walk-on on the men's basketball team uh, for a year or two. And there were several others, Glenn and Gary McCracken, uh, who were walk-ons the men's basketball team. And they decided to come over and practice with the women's team on a daily basis. Uh, not mm -hmm. only did Coach Flannery and the McCrackens uh, and several others, but we had uh, a couple faculty members, Randy Fazell, who was a a uh, professor in philosophy uh, came uh, and we were not able to be successful in women's basketball without those people who came to practice every day and worked with the women's basketball team as volunteers because of the love of the game, because of being able to help others. And uh, that was Coach Flannery. As an undergraduate student, he came to women's basketball practice every day and was basically a practice player. We couldn't be successful without it. He was a volunteer assistant when he uh, uh, when he graduated from Creighton, and then he went with Connie Yori to be an assistant at Loris College. So uh, it was easy. That was an easy decision for me because of first of all the passion that he developed, unbelievably intelligent. He was a philosophy major, about a three nine in philosophy. His character. That was, uh, my grandpa used to tell me that I had a profound grasp of the obvious. That wasn't a compliment, <laughs> but uh, hiring Jim Flannery was a profound grasp of the obvious. That was a very easy decision for me. Before we move, let me tell you guys a little bit about our partners over at Bet Rivers Sportsbook. If you haven't signed up with Bet Rivers yet, now's the time because they're offering a $250 match bonus for your first deposit. But what sets them apart is that they require just one playthrough to turn your bonus into cash money. With their new Rush Pay instant approval, withdrawing your winnings is safer, more secure, and more reliable. With football season kicking off, get in on the, get in on the action by going to betrivers.com today or by downloading the BetRivers iOS app. You must be 21 years or older. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Uh, you've been a part of the NCAA selection committee uh, a couple of times, obviously. Um, I'm a conspiracy theorist when it comes to the NCAA tournament and how they do the seedings and all that stuff. And even while we were playing in those games, I just, for whatever reason, I could always see the forest through the trees, right, as they say. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about, you know, what that uh, selection committee is like, what goes into those decision makings, and, like, how – intense to those conversations get near the end when you're deciding which team is in which team is out and essentially deciding the fate of you know teams all across the nation have worked so hard to get to that point uh in that year well i was on the men's basketball committee for six years and as mm -hmm. you said i was in your camp before i went on the committee 
I felt that there were biases, that if you were from the Big Ten, you were trying to get Big Ten schools in. If you were from the right. SEC, you were trying to get SEC schools in. And then when you uh, selected the teams, uh, you looked at in intriguing matchups. Uh, but what I found was exactly the opposite. And I will tell you that uh, the selection week was the most intense week six years in a row, the most intense week of any time that I have been involved in Division I athletics. Uh, mm -hmm. To be able to select the right teams, the 68 teams, and some of them, you had 30, 32 automatic bids. So you had 36 at-largest. Some of the at-largest were obvious, but others, uh, the, the difference in men's basketball between the 25th best team and the 50th best team is paper thin. A lot of times it's based upon opportunities. Uh, and what did you do with those opportunities? It's based upon timing. Uh, if you play 30 basketball games, you're going to play five or six where you say, boy, we wish we played this way all the time. And you're going to play five or six where you say, I don't know who put on our uniforms tonight, but let's just get the hell out of town. You know, right. and, and so as being on the selection committee, I think my background as a coach helped that process for me because I didn't put too much credence in those two or three games where you say, boy, I wish we played this way all the time or uh, too, too much credence in those few games where you said, God, we just didn't have it tonight. You tried to look at the full body of work. And, but when you got down to it, it wasn't just selecting the 68 teams. And uh, when you get to that last 10 or 15, it's intense. The discussions are intense because like I said, uh, the difference between those teams is maybe based upon opportunity, uh, maybe based upon timing. But the, the other intensity that people don't understand is putting them in the right order, one to 68. Because mm -hmm. if you don't put them in the right order and you're a three seed and you're playing a 14 seed and that 14 seed should have been a 10, you just didn't put them in the right place. Uh, then you've really penalized that three seed. Or on the other hand, if you've got, uh, you know, a 12 seed that should have been an eight and they're playing a five, uh, uh, you, you really have not done favor to either one of those teams. So uh, <coughs> putting them in the right order was also very, very intense. And you had a compressed time frame. You had a week, and during that week, it wasn't like static. It wasn't like everybody was done. There were teams still playing that week. They're playing in conference tournaments. And uh, another one of the issues was to not put too much credence on one or two games during conference tournament time. Uh, part of the, uh, uh, the process for the men's basketball committee is to judge every game equally, not to say the games at the end of the year were more important than the games early in the year. So you didn't want to dismiss those early season games and you didn't want to put too much emphasis on the late season games, but it was tremendously intense to try not only to select the 68 teams, but I think it was more intense to try to put them in the right order. Was there ever a time where afterwards, as you see the tournament play out, you think to yourself, like, man, like that team definitely should have been higher or maybe this team should have been lower. Is there a specific time that you can remember right now of when you felt that way? 
Well, I can't remember a specific instance, but again, mm-hmm. you try to not put too much emphasis on the results of the conference of the NCAA tournament either. For the same reason you don't during the year, it could be based upon matchups. It could be yeah. based upon the fact that here's a team that shot 40% from three all year and they go three for 25 in the NCAA tournament game. But as you watch the games, uh, without question, you see that there were teams that were underseeded. There were teams that were overseeded. And a lot of it is based upon their opportunities. Uh, you know, when we were in the Missouri Valley, uh, we played maybe five to seven games a year against teams that were NCAA tournament caliber teams. And what I call an NCAA tournament caliber team is a team that's in the top 75 in RPI. That means uh, they had a, a potential to be in the NCAA tournament, but we'd play five to seven games against uh, those caliber of teams. When we got in the Big East, we were playing 20 to 25 games against those caliber of teams. So we had a lot more opportunities to have good wins uh, as opposed to when we were in the Missouri Valley. When we were in the Missouri Valley, every one of those games seemed like it was an elimination game. You know, this is a game we better win if we want a chance to be in as an at-large. We didn't have to win the Missouri Valley. So you try to balance that. And I think the fact that I'd been uh, a part of uh, Creighton when we were in the Valley gave me a better perspective when it came to the men's basketball uh, committee and the men's basketball selection process, as opposed to someone who'd only been at a power school. And so the discussions in that room were intense. And obviously, uh, a lot of times there was a lot of disagreement. And you're one of 10. So a lot of times your opinion, you got outvoted. Uh, but it right. was a tremendous process. Uh, it was really the highlight experience of my uh, 27 years as athletic director was being on the men's basketball committee, not just because it was part of the process, but because of the passion and the intelligence and the character and the concern that those people had that were on the committee for getting the process right. When you're a coach, you have a small group of people you're working with. It is a, it is a small family. And when you become athletic director, you lose that a little bit because I've got 80 full-time staff. You got 300 student athletes, got 300 corporate sponsors, you got 15,000 season ticket holders, and you're spread out. And to be on the men's basketball committee, to be back to that team feeling where you were, um, uh, where you were, are you, are you there, Jay? Yeah. I got somebody trying to call in, but um Anyway, uh, to be a part of that team feeling where you got a small group of people intensely focused on the same thing uh, was was critically important to me. So what you mean to tell me is my sophomore year when we ended up playing North Carolina, it wasn't that they wanted to see Doug versus Harrison Barnes. And my (laughs) senior year when we ended up losing to Baylor, it wasn't because Baylor had just played Nebraska and there was a potential Crane versus Nebraska in the (laughs) round of 32 matchup at hand in Texas. Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) Well, and and again, you know, that was an interesting part of the process too, because Mm -hmm. I thought the same as you, but when you get on the committee, Really, there's a computer program that when you have, <laughs> when you seed people and put them in order, uh, you, you, you try to seed each region appropriately. You try to look right. at distance away from home. And in essence, the computer 
sets all the matchups, not the committee. Once you put them in order, you go through this computer process and it just happens that uh, those are the types of things that matchups that occur. Uh, but but I was I was along with you. I thought that they looked at those type of things. You don't have time to look at those types of things because the uh, selection Sunday is at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon. There are mm-hmm. games that are taking place on Sunday afternoon that impact oh, yeah, right. that yeah. impact who goes in and impacts uh, what their seed might be. So once those games are done, you plug those teams into this basically computer program and it spits out the matchups. And then when you look at it, you go, oh, wow, that's going to be an interesting matchup. And <laughs> this is going to be an interesting matchup. But there's no conspiracy as a part of it. If you say it, I believe it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a couple more questions for you uh, and okay. then we'll let you go. I, I don't want to take up all of your retirement time, right? I want you to enjoy yourself. So. Uh, I know it's going to be hard to come uh, to, to think about this and to put these in different categories, but have you been able to think about maybe a favorite moment or two that really sticks out to you in your career? No, uh, I, I don't know if there is. The mm-hmm. highlight of my career <laughs> was really going in every day and uh, being able to go watch practice, to be able to interact with 18 to 21 year olds. And, you know, people today, uh, it's, there's a different environment. There's a different mm-hmm. culture today than there was say 20 or 30 years ago. And people say kids today are different and they say it with the implication that they're not as good as they were 20 or 30 years ago. And I would disagree with that being around 18 to 21 year olds every day, I think kept me young, especially if you take the time to get to know them, if you take the time to listen to them, to listen to what they care about, why they care about, why do you think what you think? Uh, And uh, so the highlight for me was to be able to interact with the student athletes on a daily basis, be able to walk into practice even for 10 or 15 minutes and catch somebody on the sideline or catch somebody between classes or or catch somebody in the morning or or at night. Uh, But to me, uh, I can't think of, of one particular instance. It just was every day to interact with enthusiastic, driven, talented, passionate, intelligence, high character student athletes on a daily basis. And, uh, uh, I just think that, uh, uh, I don't know if there's anything, anything that is better, uh, than to be around, uh, 18 to 21 year olds. I need to ask you if there's anything you felt like you left on the table, maybe, you know, goals or, you know, things that you didn't accomplish that you wish that you had a little bit more time to, to get done. Well, there's all kinds of things, Jay. Uh, and uh, just like, I think the process for outstanding coaches, outstanding coaches every day in one way or another, go into the gym, and they say to their student athletes, what are we going to do today individually and as a part of a group to be better than we were yesterday? What are you doing today to be better than you were yesterday? That's the process. It's also the process for your coaches, for your staff, for your administrators. That was my process. Every morning I got up and said, what am I going to do today to be better individually than I was yesterday and to make us better than, than we were yesterday. 
And uh, so there are all kinds of projects that need to be done at Creighton. You know, if you're not getting better, people are passing you. When people say, mm -hmm. for instance, boy, you've got tremendous facilities, they need to step on a football program's campus and see the facilities they have. And they would be blown away by how successful Creighton has been with what we have. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of things that need to be done. What we're providing for student athletes today is completely different than what we provided for student athletes when you were at Creighton. And what right. we provided for student athletes when you were at Creighton is completely different than what we provided for the student athletes when I first came to Creighton. And we've got to continue to do that. We've got to continue to say, what are we going to be doing today, the next month, the next year, the next five years to create a better situation for the young men and young women that come to Creighton? It's kind of funny that you say that because every time I come back now, I always look around. I'm just like, man, these guys have it so good. These guys have it so good, right? But when I was there, I remember when Kyle used to come back, Kyle Corver used to come back and yeah. do, you know, his golf outing and his fundraising weekends. He used to tell me how good we had it. So yeah. I, could definitely, I could definitely see uh, where you're coming from uh, yeah. with that. And last but not least, we have to know what's next for you. What, what, what's the next chapter look like for you? Do you have a book coming out? Is there, is there a tell-all <laughs> coming out that we don't know about? What's going on in your life, Raz? Well, I don't know what's next, to be, to be real honest. Uh, I will tell you this. When I was uh, at Creighton, uh, and again, you have to try to balance your personal life with, with uh, what you need to do at Creighton to be successful. And for me to be successful at Creighton, I needed to be all in. It needed to be priority number one. And uh, there were a lot of things that I got involved with in the community. Uh, Josh Totzler, what he's doing with the Bide Ministry. Uh, Project Harmony, a, a great not-for-profit in Omaha, the Stevens Center in South Omaha, Sienna Francis House in North Omaha. And you become involved with those, but you can't be involved as much as you would like to be involved because of the pull and the demands of being successful at Creighton. So there are a lot of things in the community that I'd like to get more involved with. I'd like to stay involved with Creighton if Creighton would like to have me involved. Uh, but there are a lot of things in the community and I'm just trying to take some time to figure out, you know, what is next. And, and I really don't have an answer today. Well, whenever you do, believe me, we're going to love to hear about it. We're going to love to support you just like the community has for the last 40 some years that you've been a part of it. Yeah. Raz, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to step into the J with me beyond the podcast you know, there's no other person I would want to start the second season off with than you. And, and I just want to give you your flowers, obviously, while you're here with us, because you have done a tremendous amount. And I know you're going to be humble about it. And you're going to, you know, give credit to a bunch of other people aside from yourself. But you know, everyone who knows anything about Crane basketball and Crane University and, you know, Crane athletics in general know that you are, you know, the man who was driving that bus for quite some time. So thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm really proud to say that I have a relationship and a friendship with you. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of what you have done and what you are doing. And you're only, you know, at Crate, we're only as good as our, prod, our, our product. And you mm -hmm. are our product. And when I see people like you and how you are leading in your business, in your community, how you're conducting your life, I think that we've done a pretty good job with the process of developing 
and graduating outstanding student athletes at Creighton. So uh, I, I, I tremendously appreciate the relationship. And if I can ever help in any way, let me know. Absolutely. All right, guys, that's it. We just had the head honcho, Bruce Rasmussen, step into the J with us. Thank you again one more time, Bruce. Make sure to like and subscribe to the Field of 68 Media Network for more content such as this. Until next time, stay safe and as always, go Jays.